which is the overall title of all three of our talks together. Uh, and trying to be very realistic uh, about what's happening in our day. Uh, when I was here a few weeks ago, we looked at a number of the issues that are prevalent today in the world, in our society and around the world, uh, which is causing tremendous fear. And ordinarily people may be trying to live an a regular life on the surface, but underneath people are very fearful of what is happening in this world. And we looked at some of those issues. And also people in the church as well, we looked at some of those uh, when I was here before. We then went on to look at our response, and I was suggesting four responses as Christians living in such a world. And the first one was that we um, are to look very much at the fruits of the Holy Spirit, making us the people that we should be as reflectors of the Lord Jesus, as witnesses to his power and grace, that we're not afraid. We have that wonderful assurance from the Lord, and we are not those who have fear. Um, we returned to that this morning, and we looked at two of the fruits of the Spirit in particular. One was peace, where the Lord said, not as the world gives, I'm giving you peace. Uh, do not be afraid, and do not let your hearts be troubled. We also then looked from Philippians chapter 2, at the great fruit of humility, where Paul says, you should have the same attitude as the Lord Jesus, uh, who uh, humbled himself and gave up everything. He made himself nothing. And we saw the context of that as it goes on to say, uh, you will work out your salvation with fear and trembling so that you too, like Jesus, can be instruments for God to carry out his will and his good purpose. And so we were looking just at that area of the fruitfulness, the Christian character, the Christ-likeness uh, that we should have as we live in a world of great fear. Being at peace, we examined that a little bit this morning, uh, but at the same time, we really want to surrender everything for the Lord Jesus to be demonstrated through us, that when they see us, not because we've organized it, not because we've tried to manipulate it, but something has just happened in the growth of sanctification, the power of the Holy Spirit, that brings an atmosphere, that brings an influence, that brings a power to bear. When we are outside, we saw this morning that the world doesn't often come into our meetings now, that that day of the church seems to have passed. Uh, we're in a day when we are church, mainly we meet together as God's people already, which is right and proper. But we are far more, uh, we meet the world far more when we go out into everyday life and we take Jesus with us so that he does his work. God brings his own will and purpose because he has molded us, changed us, refined us, sanctified us through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit. And uh, we saw this this morning. When I was looking at the responses then, that was the first response, to be filled with the fruits of the Spirit. Secondly, to remember that <clears throat> God uses fear very often to bring people to himself. And that's something we may well see uh, in our society. In the fear, people are saying, what is it you've got? Why is it you don't get so upset about the state of the world? 
that's an opportunity for us. Thirdly, we saw last time uh, that uh, our response should be to be watchmen on the wall, to tell the world that God is not mocked, and there are times of judgment, and we've seen nearing one of them. And then fourthly, last time I saw, said our response should be to always remember the kingdom of God and the fact that Jesus is returning to bring about a new world order altogether. And uh, as we see people fearful, part of our response is to say we're not afraid because all this is going to change when Jesus comes back. And I want to de develop that thought this evening. Uh, if I, a couple of little readings very quickly. Uh, I left out a few verses from Philippians chapter 2 this morning because it was right and proper to do so, but I'm going to read those now and now go on to Colossians chapter 1. Therefore, having uh, Jesus, having emptied himself and made himself nothing, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And uh, so we know the end of the story. We've read the book. We've seen the last chapter. And that is a foretaste of the last chapter. Jesus is going to reign. And all fear will have gone. And so uh, that is something that we have that the world doesn't have. They haven't got a clue. But we know Jesus is coming back to bring about a new world order. But as we think of the Lord Jesus, as we've remembered him the, this evening, and as we think of his rightful place as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, let's just remind ourselves of the words of Paul in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. He, the Father, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he may have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And with scriptures like that, why should we be afraid? Why should we have fear? Because everything was made for the Lord. He holds everything together. And he is going to be seen to have the supremacy in everything. That is God's intention. That's where the world is heading. And we know it. And we rejoice that Jesus is going to be our reigning king. So I just want to explore that. We'll try to unpack that a little bit so we have some idea. I know the scripture says, and I often quote it, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into our hearts the things that are laid up for those that love him. Yes, I know that. 
but we at least can see what the scripture has to tell us that we can understand and we can know. I also recognize that Christians have differed on the nature of the kingdom and the return of Jesus. And I'm not wishing to be uh, uh, controversial in any way tonight for people that take a different view. It probably will be controversial, but I take a, a pre-millennial view. Uh, but I just want to explore what that means so that we as Christians can open up these, this subject. And if we take a different view, well, as Paul says, the Lord will make that plain to them as well. Um, so I just want to explore what we mean by the kingship of Jesus. In the Old Testament, uh, there's this wonderful prophetic hope of something great happening in this world. There's going to be a Messiah. There's going to be someone that God has chosen to bring about, if you like, a new world order, a complete change. And uh, I, as I've told you before, I love history. And uh, I've been looking a lot, quite a lot of uh, YouTube recently videos all about the ancient empires, the Old Testament era of the Old Testament, the empires, and the amounts of fighting and killing and bloodshed and so on and so forth that went on for centuries and centuries, thousands of years, millennia. Uh, and uh, always there was this thought amongst the Jewish people the writers of the Old Testament, one day Jesus is going to come. We have that lovely prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, for unto us a son is given, unto us a child is born, and the government will be upon his shoulders. Uh, and then it goes on to say, and he will reign on David's throne. And uh, that, that's the messianic hope, right through Scripture. And uh, just, just again, to uh, uh, for... for Clarity, the word Messiah and the word Christ means exactly the same person. Messiah is the Jewish Hebrew word and Christ is the Greek word, but we mean the same thing. And there's going to be this great, wonderful change in the history of the world. And uh, we're going to explore that a little bit tonight because that is the ground of our great hope when the world is full of fear, wondering what on earth is happening to this world. It's interesting, people are even saying, we've got to get ready to go to Mars or something like that to get out of it. We made a mess of this world. No, it's not we go away, it's Jesus comes here and he's going to bring about all that happens. And yet, as Christians, we have to be a little bit careful because, <clears throat> you know, we sing so many hymns about this. <clears throat> I'll just give you one or two that Jesus shall reign where'er the sun. Thy kingdom come, O God. Let all the world in every corner sing, my God and King. Jesus is King, and I will extol him. And even the Christmas carol, heart the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn King. What do we mean when we sing these hymns, when we articulate this? Uh, where is the kingship of Jesus now? Uh, the King at the moment. When uh, only about a third of the world even professed to have any interest in Christianity at all. When two-thirds of the world don't even believe in Jesus. And that includes a lot of people in our own culture who don't even think that he was a historic figure now. He was a figment of Christian imagination. And uh, he seems to be very far 
from being king at the moment. We don't really see him taking up that throne. Are we deluded? Is there something that we're just holding on to, that the world is laughing at us and saying, you think your saviour, your king, is going to reign? Well, look at the world now. He's not doing a very good job, is he? And so on. Christians generally, and I'm simplifying it a little bit, have had three schools of thought about the kingship of Jesus. Just very briefly to sort of show you those. There are those folk that, and I should say, I'm not trying to be in any way rude or, or, or nasty about these, but I just want to point out the views that Christians have had. Postmillennialism. And postmillennialism is a view that Jesus will, in fact, uh, uh, or rather that there will be a golden age on earth, a millennial age. But it won't be Jesus that brings it about, it'll be the church. And the post-millennial says the great time when Jesus is seen and reigns will be after the church has won the world for Jesus Christ. That was very strong in the early days of the missionary movement. Um, and it motivated a tremendous amount of mission uh, at the beginning of the whole missionary movement 200, 300 years ago. That we're going to win the world for Christ. Well, we sit here today and we say, well, we haven't done it yet. Yeah. Uh, and then we hand over the world to Jesus when we've done the job and he can take his place. That's post-millennialism. He's had a little bit of a resurgence in recent years. And uh, we have some of the hymns we have. This is not an age that is passing. This is an age that is to come. We claim the ground on which we stand. And those sentiments uh, are post-millennial sentiments. Then there is a view, and it's a very, very powerful view in the church today, I don't hold to it, but many do, called amillennialism. And amillennialism says, well, there's not going to be a millennium. Uh, a, no, millennialism. A, there's not going to be a millennialism, a millennial reign. What we have now is all we're going to have, and when Jesus comes back, that's the end of time, that's, that's the end of it. Uh, and that's the amillennial position. Uh, and uh, what they say is that in any sense of Jesus being the king now is the way that Christians live their lives, the influence they have. Uh, that's the kingdom. And really, that's all we're going to have. And when it finishes and the world has got worse and worse again, then the Lord comes back for the final judgment and that's the end of time. Amillennialism would say that, uh, generally speaking, that Israel is finished, the church is the new Israel, we're the throne of David, and we're going to be the ones that show the rule of Christ in our lives, but there's not going to be any great future golden age. We should be bringing about the change that we ought to in the way we live our lives. That's a millennial, very simply. Pre-millennialism talks about the Lord coming back to bring about a golden age on earth. His feet will touch the Mount of Olives. We'll be with him. I'll come back to that point in a minute. And there will be a complete and utter change in this world. Jesus will inaugurate a vast change in so many ways. And I want to look at those changes as we go along this evening. And that's premillennial. That's uh, 
the Lord will come before there is a millennium. And he has to introduce it. We're not able to do it ourselves because the force of Satan is so big that Satan has to be dealt with as part of what the Lord does. And so those are the three main schools of thought. And uh, as I say, I'm a pre-millennialist. I believe that the Lord Jesus will come about, uh, come, uh, to, when he comes back, he will bring about this change on earth. And that is a glorious hope. Now, what happens before that, we understand, is that the church at some point, all those who know and love the Lord Jesus will suddenly be raptured. 1 Thessalonians 4, that the dead in Christ will rise first, and those who are alive and remain will be caught up to be forever with them in the air, in the sky. And that is the resurrection of the Christian. After that, we stand before the Lord. The judgment seat of Christ is not a judgment on sin, because our sins were judged on the cross. We've celebrated that tonight. It's an assessment of the way we've lived for the Lord. And then we have the marriage supper of the Lamb. But meanwhile on earth, with the Christian influence having gone, there's the emergence of, uh, of the great Antichrist uh, uh, and the one who will become a world leader. We can almost see the pieces of that being put into place. I don't think it's worth speculating on who might be the Antichrist, the world leader. That I know there are characters in the world today, in high places, that could well be that sort of person. But 2 Thessalonians tells us that the man of sin, the Antichrist, this man who achieves world domination, will not emerge until the restraining influence has been removed. And there's only one restraining influence that could prevent the tremendous outpouring of evil in the world, and that's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is present in the world today in you and me. That's what we were looking at this morning. And... Uh, it's when the Christian church is raptured away, then it's going to be that outpouring of evil and God's judgment on the world. It'll be short, be the tribulation as we call it. It's pictured for us in Revelation chapter 6 through to 18. Also Isaiah chapter 24, that's an incredible little chapter, Isaiah 24. And it tells us that there will be a time of judgment. And again, uh, there's no need for us to be upset about that. There have been times of judgment in the past when God has had to bring judgment on the world at the end of different eras of his dealings with human beings. And so there's uh, going to be a, 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 a judgment period on earth, but we have been raptured. It says so often in the New Testament, several times, we have not been appointed unto wrath, but we've been appointed unto salvation. And uh, we're told also that God doesn't judge sin twice. And if your sin and my sin was judged on the cross, and Jesus bore the penalty for that, I, I, I don't believe I've got to go through the time of judgment. Uh, and Christians, I don't believe, should. Because otherwise we're being judged twice. And I don't think God is in the business of doing that. But then the Lord Jesus comes back and his feet stand on the Mount of Olives, Zechariah chapter 14, and all the holy ones are with him, the bride, the bride of Christ, who rule and reign with Christ. That's what we're looking at. And uh, we've got to look and see uh, what sort of reign that's going to be. But, but just before we do, 
Let's just go back to what was happening when the Lord was here. You see, the disciples, those who followed Jesus, those who accepted him, were all uh, they grounded in the Old Testament scriptures. They knew what the prophets had foretold. They were looking for their Messiah. They were looking for the king. They were looking for the one who would bring about that new world order, who would bring about the redemption of this precious planet, the jewel in the crown of creation. And uh, the Lord had been ministering perhaps for a year, maybe a little bit longer. He took his immediate followers, the disciples, perhaps a few others, up to Caesarea Philippi up in the north. Away from the crowds, away from the Pharisees that were always hounding him. They would really like to go up like to the northern part of Israel. And the Lord has a brainstorming session with them. Now, who do people say that I am? Oh, well, some of them say you're a prophet. Some of them say you're John the Baptist, come back to life. But who do you say that I am? Oh, yes, we believe you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. Ah, and Jesus said, yes, you're right. You didn't invent that. You didn't think that up yourself. It was revealed to you by our Father in heaven. But now I have something to tell you now that you've accepted that I am the Messiah. I'm the one that's going to bring about that amazing new kingdom on earth. And uh, I'll tell you what the program is. I'm going to die. I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. I'm going to be crucified. And from that moment on, the Lord told his people that he was going to die. Oh, Peter says, no, Lord. No, no, no. It doesn't work like that, says the Lord. You know, you've got us. You can do it. And all the way through, from then on, right through to Calvary, there was this tension between the Lord and his followers uh, where they were arguing about what they were going to do when the new age dawns, when the new kingdom comes, who was going to be greatest. You know, the times when it happened in the gospel accounts. And the Lord said, no, 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 I keep on telling you. It's not going to happen like that. For sake of time, let's go on to that first Easter Sunday afternoon. Two of his followers are walking down to the road, down to Emmaus on the road from Jerusalem. A stranger catches up with them. He says, well, you look a bit upset. What's wrong? You're only a stranger? Don't you know what's been going on in Jerusalem? What? what? It was Jesus, actually, but they didn't recognize him. Well, we thought the Messiah, the Christ, the King had come. We thought it was uh, the, the time when it should come. Uh, th this was the time when anybody, everyone had told us to expect the coming of Messiah. We had the timetable from Daniel, etc., etc. <laughs> Jesus said very kindly, I'm sure, you're so slow to believe all that the prophets had said and written. Should not the Christ have first come to suffer and die, and then he's going to come back to rule and reign? Oh. And suddenly the light dawns. <clears throat> and they rush back to Jerusalem. And actually they'd only just got there when the Lord actually came into the room where they'd met the other disciples. Isn't that a nice thought? They walked the seven and a half miles uphill from Emmaus to Jerusalem. The Lord would have been with them, but they didn't see him at the time because he got there at the same time. Three, six weeks later, 
on the Mount of Olives. The disciples are really saying, and I've paraphrased this in my own language, Lord, uh, you know, we, we see you've done the suffering servant bit now. Are you now going to do the reigning king bit? Are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you now going to bring about what we've all been waiting for? <laughs> no. It's not for you to know the times and the dates that's in the Father's will. And I'm sure they would have remembered what the Lord said only just a few weeks before. You have to go to the ends of the earth before I come back. Before I will bring about my kingdom. And that's the period of time we're in. Luke records Jesus saying this when they were arguing about it before reality set in. We read this in Luke 17, 20, 21. Once, having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the kingdom of God does not come about with your careful observation, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. And by that we understand that the Lord is saying, the kingdom of God in this age, which is just about to dawn, the day of Pentecost, is within you. It's individual people who accept Jesus as king of their lives, as Lord. And the kingdom of God in the world today is for everyone who makes Jesus king of their lives. All to Jesus, I surrender. He's your king. He's my king. He's not king of the whole world, though. If he was, <laughs> we wouldn't see what's going on in the world today. So he's king in our lives during the church age, the period of time in which we're living. But there's going to be a day, we just read it, when every eye will see him, and every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he's the Lord. When in Revelation chapter 1 we see that, it says, and many will mourn because of him, because they rejected him when they had the gospel offer. And so we have this great scenario of the king, kingdom of Jesus. The Old Testament, he's foretold. From the New Testament onwards, he comes down to first of all purchase his bride, those who will make him king of their own lives and hearts and eyes to purchase us. And then there's the time of the gospel, where our job is to go and tell people there is a king, but it's your responsibility, it's your decision now, it's when you accept the Lord Jesus as your own personal saviour. But that time is coming to an end. And people are very fearful of the whole surroundings of what's going on. But we believe, <laughs> we saw this last time I was with you, that the signs of the times are multiplying, that this world cannot go on too much longer like this. Jesus said, when these things begin to take place, look up. Your redemption draws near. But we saw that verse when, uh, before. People's hearts will fail them for fear of what is happening. It's the preliminary to the return of the Lord for his millennial reigning glory. Let me just take a few minutes to show you what sort of things are going to happen in the millennial reign. Now, I'm not going to give you all the references. I've got ten points here. I'm going to go through it very quickly to show you what sort of world it's going to be when Jesus is king. First of all, his arrival will be clearly visible to everyone. Jesus said, as the 
Lightning flashes from east to the west, so it will be when I come back and everyone will see me. Oh, and by the way, you say, well, we don't live in a flat earth, so how will everyone see him? Yeah, but we do have the internet. We do have television. And we have cameras that are always on now. And everyone will see him. Uh, and, and we've just read that influence as well. There will be a time of cleansing of the earth. Oh, and I do like this. Daniel chapter 12 says it. But uh, I'm going to give you a little verse from Zechariah 14 as well. Uh, and uh, if I can find it, I should have put a marker in the place. Here we are. Zechariah 14. We've just seen in this passage the Lord standing on the Mount of Olives. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. East of Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west. He will come and the, anoint and the holy ones with him. And then this next two verses, six and seven of Zechariah 14. On that day, there will be no light, no cold, no frost. It will be a unique day, without daytime or nighttime, a day known to the Lord. When evening comes, there will be light. Something's going to happen. Never happened before. It's a unique day. There's going to be no cold or no frost. What we do know is before the flood, before, well, before the fall, if you like, in the Garden of Eden, the whole world was a perfect, equitable climate all over. Isn't it amazing they're now discussing the remains of uh, temperate climate under the ice cap in the Antarctic? They're finding that the world had many different layers of existence. And our Bible tells us when God saw all of his creation, he said, it's very good. It's not very good if you're in the Antarctic at the moment. But there underneath, you know, they find evidences now. A bygone civilization with uh, wonderful vegetation and climate and so on and so forth. Climate change? Yes, climate change all over the world. <clears throat> when Jesus comes back to them. Paul puts it like this. He says the whole creation is groaning, waiting to be released from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. And uh, I, I don't know whether you feel the same way, but I just cannot wait for that time when Jesus comes back and restores the beauty of planet Earth as it was meant to be not with these violent scenes in our weather, typhoons and hurricanes, not with all the earthquakes and the volcanoes and all the rest of the things which are causing so much mayhem. When Jesus is Lord, creation will be put back right, as was originally intended. It's a time of cleansing the earth. And those verses I've just read from Zechariah, I love to think that that unique day, no cold or frost, when night comes there will be light. It's the Holy Spirit who created, God the Holy Spirit, created the world in the first place. He envelops the world with his great power. Gets rid of all the pollution, all the plastic in the oceans, all the degradation in the forests, in the deserts, and brings about God's glorious purpose on earth. There's so much in the scripture that gives us hope for great cleansing of the earth. Number three, Israel will have a king at last. He will be reigning on David's throne. The word of the Lord will go out from Mount Zion and the nations will beat their swords into plowshares. but I'm going to come on to that. Well, I'm going to come on to that next. There will be universal political harmony. 
And neither shall they train for war anymore. They'll beat their swords into plowshares. Oh, yes, there will still be the nations born under normal conditions in the millennial reign. But there will be political harmony in the nations. There will be universal uh, economic harmony. There'll be righteousness and justice for all. The days of corruption in governments and so on will be over. There will be enough for everyone and it will not be the haves and the have-nots that we have at the moment. There'll be universal environmental harmony. The wolf will lie down with the lamb and the calf and the lion and the yearling together and the child will play with the snake and the uh, glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea and there will be the harmony in nature that was originally intended. Nature was never meant to be red in tooth and claw. It was meant to live in the harmony of God's original purposes. There will be long lifespans uh, for humans born in that era. Isaiah 65. He who dies at a hundred will be considered a youth. Never again will there be an infant that does not live out his days. We read there from verse 17 onwards, Isaiah 65. There will be universal spiritual harmony. Again in Zechariah, there will be one Lord. His name will be the only one, the only name. And there will be no other religion. There will only be Jesus and the worship of Jesus in his King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There will be an end to all imperialism, which started in Babylon. If you remember the Nebu uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, that great imperialistic tendency in world empires ever since, Babylonian, Medo-Persian, the Greek, the Romans, what came out of the Roman Empire in two sessions, east and west, and then split into ten toes, the nations that uh, populate the world now all look back to Rome in one way or the other. And that's rock cut out with earth <laughs> that comes out of a mountain not with human hands will roll down and smash the whole of history of imperialism to smithereens. And I think that's repeated there in Revelation uh, and it's uh, chapter 18 when it talks about the world systems being completely destroyed when Jesus comes back to reign. The end of all imperialism, where we have what's going on in Russia and Ukraine at the moment, what might be happening in China and Taiwan, might be happening in Africa, and so on and so forth. That desire of one nation to take over another, something that has been such a terrible tragedy in the history of the world, it'll all be over when Jesus is king. There'll be a much better and a happier society. We do have tremendous feelings for the downtrodden, for, poor, for the poor, for those who are racked with addiction and all the rest of it today in society. But when you try to get alongside these people, how often, sometimes, you realize under the surface there is such an element of evil. Uh, and you think, <laughs> how can we help them when sometimes they don't even want to help themselves? What's going on? Well, we read that Satan will be locked in prison for a thousand years. He will be bound to keep him from deceiving the nations any longer during that period. Satanic evil. What we read of in Ephesians chapter 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. 
the work of Satan in people's minds and in demonic forces will be over. And Jesus is king. Oh, people will still have a will. They will still choose sometimes to ignore King Jesus. But then perhaps that's why we're going to be there ruling and reigning. We will remind people of what Jesus is like when they're tempted to ignore him. But there won't be the demonic element that we have in society today. And um, there'll, be a, there'll be a much happier and better society worldwide without satanic deception. Those are some of the things that's going to happen in the reign of Jesus. I believe them. They're in the Bible. And why not? It doesn't happen at the moment. We've never seen it yet. These things haven't happened yet. It's waiting for Jesus to come when he's King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So why are we afraid? He's coming back and we can look up. He says, when you see these signs of the judgment at the end of the age coming to pass, then look up. Your redemption, the redemption of the world, the great one thing that we've been waiting for for the whole of human time is going to come to pass. Jesus, our Lord, our Saviour, the one we love, the one to whom we've surrendered all, he's going to come and bring this whole poor planet to a wonderful knowledge of the living God and to worship King Jesus. May these wonderful thoughts help to drive out fear as we wait for his glorious appearing. The Lord bless you in these days in which we live.